Thank you, Phyllis. Uh, the New Testament reading comes from 2 Corinthians. I will be reading uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through uh, 21. Hear God's word. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. For we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he was and and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. For we therefore are Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May we pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the truths of the gospel. We are grateful for the work of your Holy Spirit that illumines those truths. It transforms our hearts and minds. We might become more like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the season that reminds us of a fresh beginning and new starts. And uh, may that be true in our lives in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm kind of standing here from the middle. I might wander around a little bit today. I'm not quite sure, but I kind of like it better than standing over there in the pulpit. And uh, I'm going to share some things with you today. I guess, you know, I kind of joke with Howard that uh, I'm kind of the annual preacher. I'm kind of the closer, you might say, at the end of the year. So uh, that, that's all good. So uh, I'm going to share really some kind of things on my heart today with you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm going to veer from the text a little bit, I guess you might say, but might, you might give me that license. Um, yesterday, we uh, had a promotion here at the, at the church. We had a promotion service, and that promotion service was for Wales Men. And uh, the, the children uh, did a great job sharing about whales and their thoughts, and it was an amazing service. But the thing that uh, really hit me that Wales III and I chatted a little bit about, he said, you know, I can see I have a loving Heavenly Father because I had a loving earthly father. Wow, that's strong. Of all the things that were shared yesterday, a lot of good things were shared, that really hit home to me. A few years ago, I, took a group, I brought a group of high school kids from Dallas to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in Amarillo, of all places. And uh, we had a chance to hear from different speakers. And one of the speakers was John Conley's son. Now, uh, you all have a little bit of history. John Conley was a former governor of the state. Uh, he was a part when uh, JFK was assassinated in Dallas. John Conley was in the car at that point and uh, quite a man. But his son shared his faith story with the congregation that day in 1985. And he said something I've always remembered. And he said this. He said, you know, too much of my life, I've patterned my life after my wrong father. And I went, oh, your dad was a governor. Your dad was whatever. And I since found out that uh, this, you know, this man had kind of lived a, lived a life on the wild side for many years, but uh, probably came to Christ. And he was saying, now he was modeling his life after a different father. Well, a few, a few days ago was, uh, was Christmas. And uh, at our house, uh, we, you know, we give gifts. My wife makes sure there's plenty of gifts around to uh, share. And uh, one of my daughters, uh, Blair, who's here today, she shared a gift with one of the other kiddos. And the gift was, uh, it brought tears to my eyes when I saw it because uh, this, it was a gift of a box. And in the box was a lot of letters from friends and family talking about this child. 
And this child of all my kids has probably struggled with self-esteem issues, you know, not feeling good about uh, who they are and uh, struggling with it. who am I and I'm not worthy and I'm whatever. And that really ties into to, to my background. I always got to consider myself kind of an average looking guy, kind of an average basketball skills, uh, kind of average intelligence, kind of maybe sub-average on some of those. But I always kind of felt... You know, just really, I never really measured up. I didn't, didn't, I didn't get the scale. You know, I was just kind of subpar, you might say, in my own life. And it's taking a long process. I'm going to talk about some factors today that work that God used in my life, I guess you'd say. It's been a long process of uh, the gospel applied to my life. God's initiating grace applied to who I am. Realizing who I am in Christ. It's taken a, a process of time. It didn't, want, it didn't just overnight hit me that, hey, I'm okay, God loves me, it's all going to work out. Yeah, it didn't happen quite that way in my life. It's, it's been a process of time. And as I, I saw those notes and those words of affirmation, I thought, wow, how important that this child of mine continues to hear that. And it's, again, a process of time, continuing to hear of who we are in Christ and the value of who we are. You know, our, our world is full of what I might call, Philip Yancey calls, ungrace. Our world is full of what I call ungrace. It might, start with, it might be with unaccepting parents who kind of set, again, set a bar. We never measure up to who we were in the home. We didn't feel like we didn't, we didn't do it. Uh, it might be a, a baseless, a graceless religion, you might say. The kind of a, you need to earn yourself, you need to perform and do this, or you're going to go to hell. I mean, you need to do these kind of things, or you're, you're not good enough. Or it could be just a secular culture of which we live in. You know, when you're early in school, you're kind of measured up. You're either the, you're a, you're the needy group, or maybe you're in the normal group, or maybe you're, you're advanced placement, you know, in those early years of elementary school. We're already measured in those, in those kind of ways. Uh, the corporations, they, they, you get grades for how good you perform. Uh, the government doesn't know anything about grace. It's all ungrace. Uh, frequent flyer programs. Uh, you name it. Whatever the world has, it's really based upon earn it. You've got to perform. You've got to do it. And so we, we absorb it, kind of, like, kind of like pollution. I lived in L.A. for a number of years, and you just kind of get used to the pollution. You're breathing that stuff in all the time. It's just what is. And so kind of the world kind of being ungraced, I think that's what we naturally absorb. And I think that happens for all of us. Now, the Bible really, uh, we, we, even we can make the Bible kind of be that way. We say, oh, the Bible's a bunch of heroes or people were supposed to live up to the standard of all these people who did mighty things in the scripture. We need, those are our models and examples. I don't really think that's what the real tenor of scripture is. I think really from Genesis to Revelation, I think the Bible is about the hound of heaven, uh, the, uh, the, the great initiator who pursues broken, rebellious, sinful people uh, I, with, with the love of God. I think it's, uh, I like um, the thought of, uh, again, this pursuit, this relentless, this um, dynamic, this uh, uh, crazy love of God that he pursues us. Well, the first, uh, first principle in your outline today, I put a little something, I always like something you can take with you. And so in your bulletins today, there's a little outline today. There's three kind of points. And it kind of, it really fits with the Trinity. So I'm going to talk about the Trinity today. And uh, there's a little playing on the back. I, I, want, I, I put in the bulletin before, but I want to put it, put it before you again. But the first point in your outline is this. that The first point is initiating grace. Initiating grace. And how important that is for us to absorb this truth. Philip Yancey, as I mentioned already, is one of my favorite uh, authors. And he said this. He defined grace. In fact, it was mentioned yesterday in the service for Wales. 
So there's nothing you can do. Philip Yancey defines grace this way. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. He just loves you. That's a great definition of grace. Now, this grace of God can really be seen throughout the scriptures. From the, as I said, from Genesis to Revelation, you can see God's grace at work uh, in the provision for Ruth, uh, in the Psalms of David, uh, in the guidance of Joseph in Egypt. You can see God's grace throughout scripture, replete in God's word. But God's grace, while it's through replete throughout scripture, is seen most clearly where? Where do you see most clearly God's grace? In the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. As you look to what Jesus did for us, I think we most clearly see God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. You're saved through the work of Jesus. That grace points us towards the cross. Now, why do we need grace? Orlando talked about it a minute ago. So we confessed our sins. I love G.K. Chesterton's comment that, that our sin and rebellion is the most verifiable aspect of human history. 4,000 years of human history show it, that we are a broken, sinful people. Any historian knows that as you look at human nature. We deserve, by our, by our rebellion, by our sinfulness, we deserve banishment from a holy God. But that's not the way he left it. Jesus died the death that we deserve, that we might live the life that he's always wanted for us. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did he come to a cross and die for us? Because he didn't want to live in heaven without you. Now, grace is something unique. Grace is something unique. And I love the story about the, uh, in Britain, there was a comparative religion uh, conference. And all these theologians and philosophers and real heady people were discussing all the different issues about what is unique in, in comparative religions. What's different? Somebody said, well, you know, Christianity, that's, that's where God became a man. So I said, no, 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 that isn't unique. There, there's a Norris religions or the other groups of people that God becomes people. That's, that's nothing unusual in that. And then C.S. Lewis walked in the room. And they said, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Lewis, what do you think is unique about Christianity? And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace. In the premarital counseling, I do, I've mentioned this before, but I, I asked in my first premarital counseling session, I asked couples about, about grace, about what grace is and how they see that applying to life. And I asked that question, you know, if you die tonight and appear before God, ask, and he asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And, and often they struggle. They say, well, I've done this and I, 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 I give money and I help little ladies across the street and, you know, I do these, these nice things. And then I said, that's great. I'm glad you do those. You know, but Christianity isn't what you do. Christianity is what Jesus has done. And you know, I, I describe what grace is. You know, it's interesting. People often, as I talk with them, they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But they don't get the grace card. They don't make the connection between what Christ has done and then what grace is all about. So I have to usually explain that. Now, when we're saved by grace, there's a thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about, cheap grace. And the idea is that people say, hey, I I want it, I want it, I want it. But they don't allow grace to change them. Grace is a powerful way that God changes lives. So it becomes cheap grace when we just say, oh, yeah, I get it. But your life doesn't change. There's no transformation. People can't see grace in your life. Because when you experience God's grace, you're never supposed to keep it. The idea is you pass it on. Your life becomes transformed by grace, and then you pass on grace to 
about you. You might say there's a shortage of grace in lots of churches. There's a shortage of grace. People short-circuit God's work of grace in their lives. Again, Philip Yancey said this quote. I've always loved it. He said this. He said, I, I left the church, I left the body of Christ because I could find so little grace there. But I came back to the church because I could find grace nowhere else. It's good, isn't it? It's good. Grace should change our lives. We all should become channels of grace to other people. Now, you know, kind of, I guess, the tagline of our church, or kind of a little, I guess, a motto, you might say. I don't know if you know that or not. What's the grace of the tagline of our church? It says this. And I love it. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. Now, I know in my 29 years being associated with this expression of the body of Christ, uh, we have been, our family, we've been great uh, receivers of the, uh, the grace that's here. This body has dispensed a lot of grace to our family. Now, I can think of, I've been through three senior pastors uh, here. Alan Meenan, Jim Bankhead, and Howard Griffin. And here's the deal. There is a lot of uh, different methods these three different men have had. Different methods, but the same message, right? A message of grace. They may have, these three men may have different gifts, right? Different gifts. But you know what? It's the same giver of all those three guys. And so I have said, my children, we've sat here for 29 years, being exposed in different ways, right? But to God's grace preached. That's powerful. You sit under godly, biblical, grace-centered preaching, that has an impact upon you and who you are. Three different preachers. Now, we've, we've had grace lived out to us when we had three babies, Okay? <laughs> Now, those three babies, a lot of y'all are here today, which is great. Oh, my gosh, you know, overwhelming. What do you do with three? What do you do with one? But what do you do with three? Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, lots of you guys. You guys came. You changed diapers. Thank you. You uh, brought food. Uh, you cleaned the house. I just can't think of anything in our experience of receiving grace. Again, again, this church is a grace dispenser. It was a beautiful time. We still have a lot of memories of those experiences. So, uh, through our three babies, we, uh, you all lived out grace in our lives. And finally, I'd say this. Uh, grace, uh, that I've been here for almost three decades, and uh, grace has been expressed more than once. Words of affirmation. Now, sure, there have been rough days. There have been long days at times. But I can't say how many times uh, in my life words of grace, words of affirmation, were expressed and have been expressed to me. I uh, wouldn't go anywhere else. I know for many years I thought, ah, I'll go back to Dallas. Nah, who wants to go to Dallas, right? Nobody, unless you want to go shopping. But otherwise, I'm not going there. So anyway, so grace, you know, again, grace expressed. Grace lived out. Grace preached. Uh, we all need those kind of experiences. Grace loves you right where you are. But I love the expression, but grace loves you too much to leave you there. Flattery O'Connor, a little quote in your, in your, in your, in your outline. Flattery O'Connor, a famous author, said this. All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and grace is painful. Well, now, I, I, I went to the great source of authority on this. I called Chuck Alexander. And I said, Chuck... <laughs> I said, Chuck, tell me about Lamez. Tell me about Lamez. Because I kind of thought, ah, this is, a, this is a good story. Now, if you know the story about Lamez, 
the uh, uh, Jean Valjean, who was kind of a crook, he was kind of a you know low rent crook, but he was uh, he experienced grace when the priest forgave him for stealing the candlesticks, right? So his life was changed by grace. But the inspector uh, Chauvet, Chauvet, whose whole life was rules and justice and you know tit for tat and no free lunch, you get what you you know you pay for that kind of. His whole life was that. When he encountered grace. His life fell apart, committed suicide. So grace changed Jean Valjean as he his life. But for the inspector, he couldn't handle grace. It was beyond him. So grace is powerful. Grace changes our lives. Does grace change your life? Second point in the outline is this. It talks about the concept of being in Christ. And that's what in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about a new creation in Christ. And if you look throughout Scripture, Paul describes himself as a man being in Christ. In his letter to Romans, he addresses 16 of his friends, and he says, this man in the Lord, this person who was in Christ before I was. He often describes people as being in Christ. Uh, And Jesus also spoke of this kind of uh, habitation language, this union language. Jesus in John 15, 5 says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. In you. So Jesus also speaks in this kind of union, habitation kind of language. Uh, and what does that mean? What does it mean when, when, it's, when it's spoken that way? It's really like a replete throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, over 160 times, that phraseology, in the Lord, in Him, in Christ, is used. And what, is, what does that mean? Well, it's not a spatial term. It doesn't mean like, like being in a box, we're going to be in Christ. It doesn't mean that. Uh, John Stott, again, a little definition in your outline, says this. So the relationship, Jesus and us, which is thus depicted in this phraseology in Christ, in the scripture, is something more than a formal attachment or a nodding acquaintance, something even more than a personal friendship. It is nothing less than a vital, organic, intimate union with Jesus Christ involved a shared life and love. This word in Christ, you think about the ways that it's described in Scripture. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're accepted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're justified, we're reconciled. Does that sound like an intimate relationship being described? It is. I've done this before, but I think it's so good. Here's your sin, here's your, here's your rebellion. Christ comes, he covers that. God no longer sees your sin, he sees Christ. Because you're in Jesus Christ. No other religion offers this kind of warm, intimate relationship. Um, a Buddhist doesn't say you can know Buddha. A Muslim doesn't say you can know Muhammad. A Confucianist doesn't say you can know Confucius. A Marxist doesn't say you can know Karl Marx. No. Only Christianity can say you can know in a personal way its founder. Also in your bulletin, it says this, John Stott does. Christianity is not the acceptance of certain ideas. It's a personal attitude of trust and devotion to a person. That person is believed to be alive and accessible to all. Are you experiencing that ultimate personal relationship with Jesus today? Would you like to? Third point of your outline is this. Gospel-focused Gospel-focused, sorry about the extra S in your outline. The uh, gospel-focused, which I think is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Gospel-focused, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, for years, I always thought when I heard the word gospel, 
I thought that was something that should be preached occasionally from the pulpit. I thought that uh, it's something that people need to understand the gospel. I thought it's something that people need to share with people who don't know Christ. They need to share the gospel. But I always thought the gospel was a concept that just applied to salvation only. But in the last 10 years, I've, I've kind of been broadened in my thought and my, my belief of what the gospel is all about. I've come to realize the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to all of my life, not just to my salvation. Tim Keller um, talked about this focused life, and he said this. this is a little bit, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta track with this a little bit. He says this, talk about this broader perspective of what the gospel is. The gospel deals with more than just the judicial. That means salvation. He says the gospel deals with more than just the judicial are standing before God. For it is the power of God that brings salvation, a comprehensive transformation. Everything is secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything is empowered by the Spirit, whom he bequeaths. Everything unfolds as God himself has ordained this great salvation. So the gospel really applies to all of our life, not just our salvation issue, just not that judicial point. And I can kind of describe this in a different way, this broadening idea of what the gospel is. Your interior life, what's inside of you, is not going to be changed by a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. What's going, what goes on here is not going to be changed by external rules. What really changes a life is what? Love. Love changes lives. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes what happened at the cross, the most supreme example of love at the cross of Christ. We see the full expression of God's love for us. We see his justice. We see his love. We see who Jesus is. And that's where we're transformed as we experience that love in deeper ways. Now, let's think about sacrificial love for a minute and how that changes us. You think about a parent. Now, if a person's a good parent... They have to do a lot of sacrificing, don't they? They have to give up a lot of stuff, a lot of things they may enjoy doing for the sake of raising children, reading to them, going to their events, doing things, feeding them. So a parent is a person who sacrifices a lot for the sake of their children, right? It's one way we see sacrificial uh, giving. And I think as a a young child, I think about when I was a 10-year-old, I went to downtown Dallas and I saw my favorite movie in 1963, and it's still my favorite movie. You know what that movie is? John Wayne is in it. That movie is, you're right, Biff, that movie is The Alamo. Right, okay. I thought, oh my gosh, here are these guys dying for Texas. Oh my gosh, these guys are giving their lives away for freedom. I went, wow. That kind of inspired me. That sacrificial giving of their lives was something that inspired me and still does in that way. Substitutionary sacrifice is an amazing gift. If it's a guy stepping in front of the other person, taking the bullet, if it's a person who pushes the other person away from the oncoming train and then they get hit, sacrificial sacrifice is kind of the ultimate expression of love, isn't it? Well, Jesus described his own sacrifice in John 15, 13, when he said this, greater love hath no man than this then he should lay down his life for his friends. You see, your sins were so great, he had to die. But he loved you so much, he was glad to die. The gospel, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, applies to all of our lives. The attitudes we have, the places we go, how we relate to people, how we use things, 
should all be lived under the shadow of the cross. You know, God takes care of the big stuff, right? And he lets you sweat the small stuff. No, even the small stuff he handles. But he's already taken care of the big stuff, right? His substitution. He died in your place. The Holy Spirit brings us to the foot of the cross. And it helps us daily to apply the truths of the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, to our lives as well. We become better channels of his grace as we live in Christ and we are focused on the gospel. Now, in 2019, in conclusion, I have a couple of thoughts, a couple of applications. In 2019, um, I'm going to suggest a few things that I'm going to be kind of working on for the new year. And uh, I bet you go up a lot better suggestions than these. But these are just a few, and then you add to them. In fact, you come tell me at some point. I'd love to hear from you. First thing is this. I want to read all of Scripture. When I read Scripture, I want to read it in a gospel-centered way. In other words, the Bible applies to Jesus. And we see things in the Scripture that really apply to the cross and the gospel. So you read Scripture in the context of the gospel, applying to Jesus and the cross. Second thing is this, what I want to do in the new year. I want to have different kind of pointers in my life that remind me of the cross and who Jesus is. Certain kind of pointers. David McKechnie came here a couple of years ago. And he said this. It really kind of, kind of got into It got to me. He said, you need to pick a number. Pick some things in your life. Pick a number that when you see those numbers, it reminds you of Jesus on the cross and what, how much he loves you and what he did for you. I went, okay. So I picked the number 11. Why did I pick 11? Well, I made 11 disciples survive. I don't know why I picked 11. I picked 11. And so anytime when I see the number 11, here's kind of my embarrassing thing to tell you. But anyway, anytime I see the number 11, I, I think about the cross. And now, okay, I work out at the town club. Okay, I do the town club. And I do a little Stairmaster kind of thing. And so I have a little thing that pops in front of me. It has the numbers of how, how, how long you've worked out. So that means a minute and 11 seconds, 11 minutes and 11 seconds. I, multiples of 11, 22 minutes and 22 seconds. 33 minutes and 33 seconds. Okay, anyway, get the point. All right, so here's the idea. When I get to one of the things on 11, this is kind of embarrassing to tell you because I'm not really a hand raiser. It's not kind of my thing. But, but I kind of thought, okay, when I hit anything about 11, what I do, I'm kind of doing my sermon. And what I do, I kind of look around occasionally. I kind of, oh, no, I don't want to do it today. Oh, I'm going to do it. Okay. So anytime I hit 11, I raise my hands. I'm not a hand raiser normally, but I raise my hands and I look it up. I say, Lord, thank you for the cross. Put my hands down real quick. Okay, but anyway, the, uh, the idea is well, I'm, I'm doing something, something, something to remind me of the cross of Christ. But I worked out with Blair the other day. I said, okay, Blair, i got to do this because you're going to be there tomorrow. I'm doing it. Okay, here you go. So um, anyway, so that number 11, wherever I see number 11, it brings me back to the cross of Christ, right? Okay, so little pointers, little pointers in your life that help you and get you back to the gospel, to, to the cross, what that might be. Now, I, uh, I don't know about you, but in the mornings when I wake up, what happens when you wake up? The first thing that happens, all your problems and worries jump on you, right? It's, it's kind of like they got a planned attack in the mornings. And it's really difficult. Well, I, I've kind of developed a little routine in my mind that uh, the scripture that I've memorized, uh, the Bible says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So when all those worries and concerns start coming, I try to revamp my brain to quote scripture in my mind. I'm laying there in the dark. So that's something I try to do to, again, focus on the gospel what Christ has done for me to live being in Christ, to experience his initiating, initiating grace, those the way I try, to, try, I try to do that. And that's helpful. Um, okay, there's a couple more I want to mention. Um, oh, okay, here, here's, here's another one. Um, then, oh, what is it? I forgot that one! <laughs> the... Uh, 
Anyway, okay, in conclusion. <laughs> you save some time on that deal. The, um, oh, okay, okay, here, okay, okay. All right, in the mornings, in the mornings as well, if you flip over your sheet that you have, okay, and on the back of that sheet, I have given you a John Stott. It's a prayer by John Stott. And it is a, it's a Trinitarian prayer. And it kind of encompasses everything in this sermon, really, in the message. That I, I, I hit my knees. Before I see anybody else, I want to see the Lord's face. And uh, so I hit my knees and I pray that prayer. Or kind of a, you know, not the exact prayer that's there, but something kind of like that. I, I, I call it kind of a Trinitarian prayer. And that's the thing that kind of helps me in that uh, walk. Oh, I didn't remember another good one. Okay, here's a good one for a lot of you folks. All right, when you're driving your car, it happened to me this morning. I was driving here this morning. I was trying to get on the freeway. And when I was coming on the freeway, the freeway was empty. There was this car from Nevada. I know it's where it's from. This car came out, and it would not give up the, the lane. I couldn't come in, but there was nobody else anywhere around. So my initial thought is, oh, what a crummy person. But all right, now what I've, what I've thought is, when I, hit, when, I, when I run into bad drivers, or I'm in a long line of cars, what I now think, I, I, my mind goes, I am a sinner. I am a real sinner. I'm thinking about them, right? But that makes me think about me. Okay, so I'm a sinner too. So anyway, so that's a pointer. When I'm driving, seeing lousy drivers, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I am a sinner. I need help. So that's a little pointer to focus again on God's grace. Okay, now, in 2019, in 2000, as you look at the new year, again, you might have other pointers you're going to have in your life. I, those are just a few that I've given you that I'm, I'm currently trying to apply to my life, okay? Let me ask you for the new year. It could be, 2019 could be a transforming year for you, and I hope it is. If you come into contact with the initiating grace of the Father, you live into the intimate love relationship in Christ of the Son, and you're focused upon the gospel as the Holy Spirit empowers you to focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis talks about, uh, in the, as far as the Trinity is concerned, that uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's kind of neat. He talks about it, it's kind of a dance. There's kind of a dance, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They kind of all defer to each other. They all love each other. There's kind of a dance going on in the Trinity, or being, you know, being, being Trinitarian monotheists. But there's kind of a dance between them. And so what I want to ask you finally today, as you think about 2019, is, is this. I'm going to ask you, do you want to join the dance? Do you want to join the dance of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? That invitation is always there for you, to join the dance. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in very personal ways. You, you are the divine initiator. Uh, you're the hound of heaven that pursues us. We are amazed by your grace. Lord, we thank you for the truths of the gospel that uh, you uh, desire an intimate love relationship with us in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to live in Christ, in the knowledge and the, and the walk. It's, that love is transformative. It changes our lives. And, Lord, we do thank you for the gospel that not only applies to our salvation, but, Lord, applies to all of our lives, that we might live beneath the shadow of the cross, often reflecting upon your love and your presence and your power. Lord, we'll give you all the glory, honor, and praise for what you will do in 2019. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.